0: Welcome to the Markets Measure podcast, a forum for in-depth discussions with some of the investment community's most prominent thought leaders, product innovators, and portfolio managers. I'm your host, Brad Ziegler, and I'm happy to welcome George Billing-Stanley, State Street Global Advisors' chief gold strategist to the program today. A bit of background... Prior to joining State Street, George was a managing director at the World Gold Council, where he was a key member of the team responsible for the launch of the world's first gold-back ETF. Before that, George worked at Lehman Brothers, where he developed customer business for the precious metals trading desk and was responsible for the firm's research and analysis of the metals market. All of this topped his career as a chief precious metals analyst at Consolidated Goldfields, and 10 years as a reporter and columnist for the Financial Times. That's a very impressive resume, George. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you've Thank been well.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Brad. I'm very happy to be here. One of the things about being over 70 is that you get quite a long resume. So uh, I'm glad that you, uh, that you got through it as quickly
0: as you did. <laughs> OK. I hope mine is as long when I turn 70. George. Gold's always been in the news, but much more so in the past couple of months. After languishing for several months, spot gold's price recently jumped, stabilizing above the $1,900 per ounce level. Global exchange traded uh, funds centered on gold. uh, Their inflows have also mushroomed. Can you talk about the factors contributing to those price hikes and inflows? It seems investors were motivated by Higher consumer prices, persistent equity volatility, and of course the Russian invasion of Ukraine. True,
1: I think I think you've nailed the three most important factors, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned several different factors. It always seems to take a a confluence of events, if I can use a, a hackneyed phrase, to to move the gold price. Before Russia moved into Ukraine, we were already the price was already starting to improve. Late last year and into the beginning of this year, uh, and I think that was primarily on those inflation concerns that you mentioned, and on the uh, the rising equity volatility. As far as inflation is concerned, you know we started to get uh, unduly high numbers uh, as long ago as last June, but investors didn't take an awful lot of action about those those high inflation numbers for most of last year. And I think that's partly because the people in authority, the the Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, and and Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary, um, the people who were supposed to be in a position to know, insisted for most of last year um, that those high inflation numbers were transitory, they will soon pass, don't take any action as a result of them. And investors didn't. Um, We didn't see major moves into gold, uh, even in the face of those high inflation numbers. Now that they've dropped the word transitory from their vocabulary, uh, I think that people are beginning to realize uh, inflation at 40-year highs is not going to go away anytime soon. The Fed has made one small increase in interest rates, 25 basis points, and has said that it's going to do six more probably in the remainder of 2022. What will that do? That would put Fed funds rate at about one and three quarter percent which I don't think is a level that really ought to frighten anybody and I'm not sure it's a level that's really going to do anything very much to tackle inflation at above 7% which is where we are on the consumer price index right now but I think that that you know the the perception that inflation wasn't was not going to go away in a hurry has been one of the major reasons and then you mentioned uncertainty in equity markets Um, I read somewhere recently that the S&P 500 apparently registered no fewer than 70 fresh all-time highs in the course of 2021. Now, that was probably wonderful for anybody who has a good investment portfolio, such as myself, and I hope you and your listeners. But it's also one of the things that worries me, because it's really hard to bank on, um, on a repeat of that kind of performance this year. So I think there was a lot of uncertainty there. And then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, all that did was simply add uh, a layer of geopolitical uncertainty onto what was already a very, very uncertain environment. And gold always tends to thrive when the environment is is uncertain. So I'm glad you named all of those three. You got them dead right. And I think that's that's uh, that's worth knowing.
0: Well, thank you for that. Uh, Gold is commonly viewed as an inflation hedge, but its relation to inflation in the consumer price index isn't as strong as some would believe. From a hedging standpoint, there seems to be a stronger relationship between gold's price and real interest rates. Can you address that? First of all, explain what we mean when we talk of real interest rates.
1: Okay, real interest rates, very simply, is... um... Is the rate of inflation minus the the current level of interest rates? In other words, it's inflation-adjusted interest rates, as opposed to nominal interest rates, which is what, uh, which is what Mr. Powell raised with Fed funds um, a couple of days ago. Um, so that that that's that one. I, I think the the seminal text on gold's relationship to inflation was a book called The Golden Constant that was written by a professor Roy Jastrom at the University of California at Berkeley and published, I think, back in 1970. And he looked at uh, at inflation using proxies for the CPI going all the way back to the 14th century. Uh, And uh, he basically said, you know, a lot of people think that gold's a good predictor of inflation. It's not. History does not back up that contention at all. It might offer some protection against inflation. But uh, but it certainly isn't a good predictor of inflation. And I think that's probably right. Uh, as far as the relationship between gold and inflation is concerned, when inflation has been high, and I would put that at above 5%, and it has been sustained at a high level, so above 5% increase a year for a sustained period of time, by which I mean at least six months and preferably longer, then gold has tended to offer returns in the area above 12% per year. And I think that that's where gold really comes into its own when we have very high sustained levels of inflation. We haven't really had those for a long time. We had them during the 1970s. And I think it's no surprise that the gold price went up 20-fold during the decade of the 1970s, largely because we had very high in the mid-teens, Uh, inflation for a sustained period of time, for most of the 60s and 70s, in fact, before Paul Falker came along and tamed the wild beast of inflation, as they said it, um, by putting interest rates up to, uh, by putting Fed funds up to within a hair's breadth of uh, of the 20% a year mark. So I think that's really um, where the relationship with inflation comes in. I think that gold probably has a closer correlation you're talking about as a uh, you know as as a correlation against real rates. Even that correlation decouples from time to time, and I think it has only just come back into uh, uh, in, into its its um, its normal position, if I can call it that. Um, the correlation that I tend to look at is really between the gold price and the M two measure of money supply. Uh, and if you think about it, we're actually going all the way back to Milton Friedman of the Chicago School. Um, and it was Milton Friedman who said uh, inflation, you need two things to happen for inflation in the US. You need a significant expansion in the money supply. And I think he preferred M2 as the uh, appropriate measure to look at as well. And he said you also need an increase in the velocity with which the expanded money supply moves around in the markets. Um, now, we have had significant increases in M2 ever since uh, ever since the global financial crisis of 2008, but we have had very, very low velocity, in fact, record low levels of velocity in the way the money moves around in the market. I think that's why gold has not responded uh, as one might expect, but we certainly seem to be getting back now to a much more normal relationship. Um, velocity in the money markets is picking up, and I think that that's, uh, that's where we're seeing gold really come into its own. So. To me, I think that um, money supply is a better precursor of inflation, um, better predictor of it. uh, And I think that the relationship is probably between gold and money supply, closer between gold and money supply, rather than with with real rates or with CPI itself.
0: Good to know. Now, it's reported that Russia's gold holdings account for over 20% of its total foreign reserves. And recently, the Bank of Russia announced that it would resume domestic gold purchases in an attempt to shore up its finances following a severe drop in the ruble and double-digit interest rates on the heels of Western economic sanctions. Can you discuss the influence of Russia on the gold price now and its um, as an asset class, and your expectations for the Federal Reserve's money policy going forward?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, as, as far as Russia's influence on on the the price right now is concerned, as I say, the invasion, um, morally reprehensible as it is and horrible as it is, has uh, has definitely been helpful for the for the gold price because it has raised perceptions of the the you know the the level of geopolitical tension. So I think that's really been the impact. Um, As far as the the 21% of of reserves that that Russia holds in gold, what that means is that they have almost 80% of their reserves in foreign currencies. Um, And there's been a lot of talk that the Russian Central Bank might feel the need to sell some of the gold um, in order to to either to, to shore up its finances, to shore up its currency, uh, and possibly to try to get around sanctions. How they would do that, I have no idea. It seems to me those sanctions seem to be pretty efficient. I think it would be a tremendous job for them to do that. But the issue from my point of view is um, what do you get when you sell gold reserves, if you are able to ship them overseas, because I understand that 95% of Russia's gold reserves is held at the central bank in Moscow with only 5% in international institutions. But what do you get when you sell gold? You get foreign currencies. Why would the Russians go to the trouble of selling gold in order to generate foreign currencies when almost 80% of their reserves is already in the form of foreign currencies? It would seem, un, it would seem illogical um, to, to, to move to gold when they already have the foreign currencies. The other thing to mention, Um, I'm not sure who would be dealing with them because of uh, uh, the sanctions issue. Uh, And then finally, Russia has spent more than 20 years using its foreign currency income, mostly from energy exports, but using its foreign currency income to increase its gold reserves, building them up from less than 5% 20 years ago to a little over 20% today. It would seem unusual to turn around and start selling something that Russia has been working very, very hard to build up. Um, as for the decision of the central bank to resume purchases from domestic gold miners, um, frankly, I don't care what uh, explanation the Russians put on this, whether they talk about supporting the ruble uh, or, or whatever. To me, this looks very much like this is a way of helping an important domestic industry. Russian gold miners, I'm quite sure, have run into the sanctions issue when they tried to sell their output on the international markets. Um, and I think they're probably uh, unable to do so because of the impact of sanctions. So what the Russian government is doing, yes, it may be building up its gold reserve, but I don't think that's the primary reason that it's resuming purchases from domestic miners. I think the primary reason is essentially to stop them from going bankrupt, to give them some income from their gold production so that they can remain in business. And frankly, I see it as, a, as an industry-supporting move, rather than something that the Russian government wanted to do for its own purposes. Now, it does have, as I say, the secondary purpose, if you like, that it is uh, helping Russia to continue to build its gold reserves and build the proportion of gold within its total official reserves. So I think that that's uh, that's kind of a bonus, the primary purpose, industry support, in my view. As for the Fed, um, one of the things that Jerome Powell has done in his tenure, I think, is to bring a very welcome degree of transparency that we have not always had under his predecessors, and here Alan Greenspan—I'm thinking particularly of you—I um, think that Alan Greenspan prided himself on being opaque. Really, didn't want markets to understand what it was he was doing or even what it was he was saying. I think he, he valued that. Mr. Powell is exactly the reverse. He he recognizes that the last thing that financial markets need is shocks or surprises of any description. Uh, They react very, very badly to them, especially the equity markets. And so he has done his very, very best to telegraph well in advance what he was going to do. If you think back just a month or two ago, Brad, the markets were saying, you know, the inflation is so high, 7.9% on the CPI for February when we got the print a couple of weeks ago. The inflation is so high that the Fed's probably going to be forced to act between meetings. Mr. Powell has given the lie to that one. He said that would smack of panic and the Fed is not panicking. We will act on our regular meetings. Um, so that's one uh, piece of alarmism that he's he's given the lie to. Secondly, a lot of people had said that uh, at this week's meeting in March, um, that he would be forced to raise rates by at least 50 basis points and possibly more. And again, a week or two ago, he made it abundantly clear that that was not on the table. He said, I would support, you know, it's a vote anyway, but he said, I would support an increase of 25 basis points at the March meeting, which is exactly what he did. And that's what the Fed got through. And then in the statement that came out on Wednesday of this week, after Mr. Powell made his move, he said, we expect, and this is still only an expectation, but that we expect to do probably six more rate hikes Um, in the rest of 2022. And again, markets, some people have been talking about seven, eight or nine increases. And he's made it very clear. He's going to be very measured in his approach. And I think what he's doing here, if you think about it, the Fed has this very complex dual mandate that must be difficult for Mr. Powell to live with. Um, The two things, the first one, the Fed is supposed to preside over monetary stability, So clearly, with inflation at a 40-year high at 7.9% on the consumer price index, he has to do something about interest rates, and he's made it clear exactly what he plans to do during the rest of the year, as long as those plans don't get derailed by anything. So that's the first piece of the mandate. He needs to raise interest rates. Um, But he's also supposed to preside over full employment, and while he's made it abundantly clear during successive Fed meetings Um, that he believes the employment situation in this country is improving, I think he's still concerned that our workforce is smaller than it was before the onset of COVID back in uh, the beginning of 2020. And he is concerned about that um, because he wants to be sure that he fulfills both sides of his mandate. And then I think perhaps in the back of his mind, he also has a, a lingering thought perhaps with this country, apparently $30 trillion in debt, as we were told a month or so ago, with, infl- with interest rates where they are, real interest rates mostly in negative territory, nominal rates at historical lows, servicing that debt is not a problem for the US government. But when uh, Powell raises the Fed funds rate, the general level of interest rates goes up and typically goes up much faster than the Fed funds rate does because the markets always anticipate more increases in the future and tries to get ahead of the game, um, we could actually run into some problems financing $30 trillion in debt if Mr. Powell moves uh, rates too, fast, too far and too fast. And he's also concerned he doesn't want to be accused of, of triggering a recession in this country, which we will get if he raises rates too far and too fast. So I think he's he's between a rock and a hard place. I, I, I wouldn't like his job um, at this juncture. Uh, I would certainly not like his job right now.
0: I'm happy with my job as well. So <laughs> <laughs> let's get down to some practical specifics, George. In- investors and advisors often use gold tactically in their portfolios, in- aiming to preserve wealth during market corrections and in times of geopolitical stress or dollar weakness. But now, given gold's historically low or negative correlation with most other asset classes, investors and advisors are reconsidering gold as a core asset. Now, I know there's research showing that portfolios may be made more efficient with a strategic allocation to gold. State Street, in fact, recently published a study entitled The Role of Gold in Today's Global Multi-Asset Portfolio. Can you talk about that paper? And is there indeed a place for gold as a core diversifying asset in an investor's portfolio?
1: Brad, I, I think gold really comes into its own in the long term. And I've always believed in the 50 years I've been involved in this business, I've always believed that uh, that a long term strategic allocation to gold makes sense and can benefit just about any portfolio. How big that allocation is, is going to depend upon uh, the the particular, there's no such thing as an average investor. It's going to depend on an investor's liquidity needs. It's going to depend on a particular investor's tolerance for risk and a whole host of other factors that will determine um, just how much gold is appropriate for any one investor. But, you know, I, I've been talking about long-term strategic allocations to gold in the context of a, what used to be the typical 60-40 portfolio with, with equities and bonds in it. And and some of the people on um, the gold strategy team that I'm part of at State Street, uh, these are much younger people than myself. Most people are younger than myself, for that matter. But they, they told me that I should be thinking about a global multi-asset portfolio. So I said, well, show me what one of those looks like, which they duly did. They got a, a very typical sample of one of those. And I said, OK, the, the basic literature on, on strategic allocations to gold suggests a range anywhere between 2% and 10% would would benefit a portfolio and as i say where on that spectrum you sit depends entirely on this this whole host of factors risk tolerance liquidity needs and so on so we plugged in Um, We we took a a global multi-asset portfolio with with, uh, equities of various different types and geographies, growth and value, domestic and foreign, um, various different kinds of bonds, both governments and corporates. And again, high yield, medium yield, uh, low yield, whatever, governments and corporates and so on. The portfolio also had some private equity, um, some real estate exposure, some general commodity exposure, as opposed to specifically gold. And what we did was we plugged in 2%, 5%, and 10% gold, uh, and then projected all of this back to the time when we launched uh, GLD, the first full year of the existence of GLD, the gold-backed ETF that we launched, and the first full year was, was, was 2005. So we projected everything back to 2005. We did this study a couple of years ago, but for cl- compliance purposes at State Street, we have to update it every quarter. And I get a a whole sheaf of collateral every quarter bongs into the inbox on my computer. The first one I look at is always this particular study, the role of gold in today's global multi-asset portfolio, just to make sure that the message is consistent. What we found was that even at the 2% level, it doesn't really make a big mathematical difference to the, port- to the performance of a whole portfolio. But at that level, we found there was a, a small improvement in returns and a small reduction in risk. So we figured maybe we're onto something here. Those numbers got better at the 5% level. But what we found was that the biggest increase in returns and the biggest reduction in risk came at the 10% level. So that mathematically speaking, for the mythical investor behind this hypothetical portfolio, um, 10% was the optimal level. Now, again, as I say, stress that where people fit uh, within that spectrum is going to depend on a whole host of different factors. But that was what we we found out. That paper, The Role of Gold in Today's Global Multi-Asset Portfolio, can be downloaded from uh, SSGA.com, the basic website. And uh, I think it's worth a read. As I say, the message has been consistent for more than two years now. Uh, and I think that that's a very, very important piece of research. And that's, that's where to find that. As far as other pieces of research that might be of interest, I'm currently, uh, I, I have a, a blog piece. I, I do a cadence of blogs. I try to do four a year under the title of Gold Nuggets. These can also be found at ssga.com. The current one is really looking to see if there are any lessons that can be learned um, from recent history to give us some pointers as to what the gold price might be likely to do during the remainder of 2022. The past, as we know, is really a terrible guide. And of course, past performance is no guarantee of future returns, but it is the only thing we have to go on. So that, that's, I figured that that was worth taking a look. That should be published within a week or so, uh, and that might be worth taking a look at. An earlier blog post, this one I think was posted in January, was essentially the, the outlook for 2022, and this was all taken from the point of view of last December. So what we did, we came up with the typical three scenarios, a base case, a bullish case, and a bearish case, looked at the economic and political and other factors that would have to be in the environment for each one of these to to come to pass. Uh, And basically decided if nothing changed from the the world that was in December of 2021, then the gold price was likely to average somewhere between $1,800 and $2,000 an ounce. Uh, That would be the likely price range for 2022. Now, of course, a couple of things have changed. You put your finger on them. One being that, uh, that the markets now understand that inflation is definitely with us and may well be with us for a while and to um, the, uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. So I think that has made uh, the outlook somewhat more favorable for gold, which I think is why we have been bumping along at the, toward the top end of that trading range that we expected. Our bullish trading range suggested if things improved for gold and kept improving during 2022 became more favorable, then we might see gold trade above 2000, um, perhaps somewhere between 2000 and 2200. And I think we probably will see that simply because things have become more favourable. But I'm going to be watching very, very carefully to see exactly what happens with those inflation numbers. I'm not expecting any significant impact on inflation from one 25 basis point increase uh, this week. I'm really not expecting a whole lot of um, in, uh, influence on inflation if we even do get the full seven uh, increases that uh, that Jerome Powell has suggested. So. I think inflation is going to be with us. I think things are going to remain pretty favorable.
0: Well, I know we'll all be keeping an eye on such things. And George, this has been a most enlightening conversation. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us. And we look forward to following your future research.
1: Brad, I really thank you for the opportunity. Um, It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, let's revisit this at some point in the future and see if some of my, um, my, my, my prognostications turn out to be accurate. Thank you.
0: Indeed. And thanks also to our listeners. Be sure to join us for the next Markets Measure podcast when we host another leader in the investment community to discuss timely and practical ways to improve portfolio performance.